Let's open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 17. We've been in Revelation 17, and we're going to finish this chapter today. We've been in it for three weeks, and I don't really apologize for that because it is a, a very pivotal um, chapter, 17 and 18. The, this whole idea, this whole theme of Babylon is uh, replete throughout the Bible. We see it first in uh, Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We see it in Isaiah chapter 13 and 14. We see it coming back in Jeremiah 50 and 51. And certainly we see it here in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And the whole premise behind this chapter is that uh, in the end days, as you know, we are in the um, getting toward the the we're getting toward the very end of the tribulation period. In fact, uh, three weeks ago we looked at the very last bold judgment, and the very next thing chronologically that happens after that seventh bold judgment, which includes um, um, the, the the thing that happens immediately after that is the coming of Christ, the second coming physically to the earth. And so these chapters that we're going to be looking at, 17 and 18, are what we call parenthetical chapters. They're chapters that kind of fill in the details of the destruction of Babylon that we heard about in previous verses here in Revelation. We saw it in Revelation 14, verse 8, where it was anticipating what was coming. It says, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of, of the wrath of her fornication. And also in Revelation 16, verse 19, this was the seventh bowl judgment, what does it say there? It outlines for us. Now that great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And so Babylon now is brought to the forefront, and we're going to see chapter 17 really talking about the ecclesiastical destruction of Babylon, this woman that we see uh, in this chapter, a woman riding the beast. And we're going to see that this woman is nothing more than a apostate religious system that's going to be uh, very active in on the earth after the church is removed during this tribulation period that we're speaking of. And it's a period of time that occurs after the real church, you and I, if you're a born-again believer, we are taken up in the rapture before these things come out. For God has not appointed us to wrath, right, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. It's a great verse. Memorize it. Um, but we're going to be removed before that happens. But there is going to be an apostate church on the earth after the church is removed, and it's going to be uh, centered, we believe, in Rome, and I believe it is Rome. I don't, when, it, when it says Babylon here in chapters 17 and 18, it literally is Babylon that it's talking about. But when it talks about this woman who is a, a, a harlot, and a harlot is someone who is unfaithful, and there is spiritual adultery, and that's really what God is speaking to. It's a spiritual adulteress is really what she is. She's a system and I won't, uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I believe that it is, uh, the very heart of it is it's going to be in Rome. And I think it gives several uh, clues or pointers to that as we go through this. And I believe it is Rome. And I believe Rome is going to be the center of it. And I also believe that um, also apostate Protestantism, Islam, and the New Age cults, they are all going to be formed into one. John Lennon's song, When All the World Will Be As One, will fully be realized when this happens, a one-world ecumenical nightmare. They will think it's freedom, total freedom, 
but it is going to be a mess. It's going to be apostate. It's going to be horrible. And God refers to her as a harlot because a chaste virgin is one who stays close to Jesus. That's why we are called the bride of Christ. But this is a harlot church. It's a harlot. It's apostate. And we're going to look at, um, uh, we're going to summarize this. The, the reason I, I wanted to, there's going to be a little bit review this, of review this morning because I didn't want to rush through this and I didn't want to start Revelation chapter 18 and then have to come back to it uh, in another session. So um, bear with me as we just do a little bit of review and then we'll finish this chapter. But just to kind of recap where we're at here, let's just read through the verses and I'm just going to make a few comments until we get to verse 9 and then we're going to kind of dig in there, okay? And so... It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Again, this great harlot we know is an apostate religious system, which we believe will be in Rome and also include many other uh, faiths, including uh, Protestantism and Islam and the new, uh, new Age cults. And notice it says that this harlot sits on many waters. And later on in verse 15, we're going to see that the many waters is defined for us so we don't have to figure it out. It, it says it's uh, the many waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so this religious system really is ensconced, if you will, over all of the earth. And Catholicism and the apostate religious system is already alive and well on the earth right now. In, uh, in, in Protestantism, in Romanism, Roman Catholicism, it's already here, and it's already in the formation as we speak, and it's getting very mature, and it's going to become to its fruition once the real church, you and I, are removed. Notice, with, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in this spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman, this woman, sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And we've already looked at this, but by way of review, the, the beast is really an amalgamation of several different world empires. We know that Babylon was the first. Uh, the Medes and the Persians were the second. Greece, under Alexander the Great, was the third. And Rome was the fourth. And I would say Rome A. There's Rome A, and then there's Rome B, or Rome uh, Stage 1 and Stage 2. Stage 1 has already happened. Until the fall of the Roman Empire, that was stage one. But there's stage two coming yet in the future, and it's called the revived Roman Empire. But this beast really some, is an amalgamation of all those horrible things about those kingdoms are all going to be wrapped up into this final beast, and it's going to have seven heads and ten horns, and we're going to look at that this morning. But notice in verse four, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. Now, purple and scarlet are the very colors of Roman Catholicism. You look in the Roman Catholicism, and you look in their literature, you look, and, and purple and scarlet are interspersed throughout. It, you can't look at this and think well, it's something else. It, I believe with all my heart that it is the Roman Catholic Church, at least at the beginning of that. And the reason I believe that is because Romanism or Babylonianism has always been a part of Catholicism. We're going to look at today, and we looked at it last week, actually, that Babylon that began back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, the remnants of that, of that false religious system that began at the Tower of Babel and at Babel, which was built by Nimrod, 
the, the, the horrible things that they did there and the religious system that was established there, that was exported as they went throughout all the earth. Remember, in chapter 11, God dispersed them because they couldn't understand one another. He confused their language, and that's why it was called Babylon or confusion. And so as they scattered throughout all the world, they took with them the remnants of that false religious system, the, the mother and the son cult, which we see in every culture, in every religious system, we see this mother and son cult. Cult. And it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a, uh, a counterfeit of the original. The original is Mary and the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But Mary is not equal with Jesus. But, but that religious system venerating the mother and the son and some all these uh, crazy things was exported throughout the world. And unfortunately, Roman Catholicism has kept the tenets of much of that Babylonianism. It doesn't take hard. You can look at uh, Alexander Hislop's book, The Two Babylons. You can read Dave Hunt's book, The Woman Who Rides the Beast. There is so much evidence. You could spend weeks on this, and I'm glad that we're not, although we have. (laughs) Three weeks. This will be our third week, and hopefully we'll get done with it. We will get done with this. So, anyway. So, this woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and she was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Roman Catholicism, even Protestantism in America and throughout the world, is loaded with money. Loaded. The Catholic Church is very rich. They've got basements in the Vatican filled with gold. <laughs> gold ornaments and gold chalices and cups and little crucifixes with diamond studs. I mean, all this stuff is very well documented. There's tons of stuff I could share with you. But just trust me when I say that that is the case. It is the case. And so, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, this woman, this false religious system, and the filthiness of her fornication. Notice what it says in verse 5, and on her, on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, comma, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, I need to share something with you. This harlot, this woman, of course, is the apostate church. But this word mystery is not part of this title. In fact, in the uh, New American Standard Version Bible, it has this. You can see it on the screen. It says, and on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. And then the title. What is the title written on her forehead? Is it Mystery Babylon, the mother? No. It's Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. She's the progenitress, Babylon is the progenitress of all these filthy things that have been caught and snagged and held onto in the Roman Catholicism and in Orthodox Protestantism, in the Orthodox Church as well. But notice that she is, it is a mystery. Because mystery is a noun, it's not an adjective describing Babylon. Some people say mystery Babylon, but it's not that. It's not, it says a mystery. And the mystery is, What is this woman doing riding the beast? What does this woman, this religious system, have to do with government? The mystery is, why are they so simpatico? (laughs) Why are they so uh, close to each other? And we looked, if you remember, again, this mother-cult relationship, this mother-cult, mother-child cult throughout the world in many different cultures and religious systems. And you can see this. We looked at this last week. But notice in verse 6 in our text, it says, I saw the woman, she was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. 
And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And remember, uh, Sir Robert Anderson of Scotland Yard estimated that Rome was guilty of the death of 50 million Christians through the Inquisitions, the stake, and the torture chambers are all history. This is all very well documented. There's no denying it. There's no denying it. Tons of evidence with this. She has tortured Christians. She's tortured Jews. She's tortured uh, those of Islam. In verse 7 it says, But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And remember, we looked at the beast, and we know that the beast is not only the satanic power behind this world ruler that's coming on the scene, but it also includes him, the Antichrist, or the one that we call the lawless one, or the beast himself. It is a person, but that person is so closely associated with the government that he leads, it really is one thing. It's almost like they've, uh, you know, John here in this, uh, in the revelation is kind of talking about the beast, but the beast is more than just the man. The beast is also the man, but he's also the, 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 the revived Roman empire that he rules over. Does that make sense? So it's not just the man, it's also the system that he oversees. And notice in verse 8, And the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names, notice, are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And we know that the Antichrist, we read in Revelation chapter 13, that at some point during his, some point in this first half of the tribulation period, this, this first half, three and a half years of this seven-year period, he's going to have an assassination attempt, and some believe that he'll actually die, and Satan himself will come from the abyss. Satan himself, not a demon. <laughs> there are people in the world that are possessed by demons, and, and I've seen some of this stuff, and, and they're really interesting characters. But we're talking about the devil himself is going to take residence in this man. And he probably will shock most of us if we were, if we were here on the earth at that time. Because most people would think he would probably be the most ugly looking, you know, uh, he's probably going to be the, the smoothest character you've ever seen. He's probably going to be handsome. He's going to speak really well. He's going to have a, a charisma about him that's going to make people's jaws drop. He's going to have all the answers. He will be their savior, lowercase s, thank you. But notice, he was... Because John is speaking as if it's already happened. He was, and then, uh, and is not, meaning he's going to suffer this assassination attempt, and then, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Not the man himself, but the spirit, the spirit of, of the devil himself will incarnate inside this man, and he will be known as the man of sin, the son of perdition. And he will come into this man. And, and, and again, he's a counterfeiter. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, what does it say about our Lord Jesus Christ? It says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Notice that last line, and, and compare that with what we saw in verse 8 there. The beast that you saw was and is not and, and will ascend. 
The devil is no dummy. He is very smart. In fact, he, I would say, without giving him too much credit here, he's genius. He's no power compared to God. And as a child of God, apart from God, you are nothing. But in Christ, he cannot touch you. He can mess with you, but he cannot take away what God has given to you. He cannot take your salvation away, and he can mess with your mind and your heart if you, if you let him. But the thing is, is your salvation is secure. Your salvation is secure. But this one can only counterfeit Jesus. There's no, nothing new there. What is that phrase? Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. <laughs> It's true. He doesn't come up with anything new. He doesn't have to. The best way to, de- to deceive is to come along and make everything sound just like the original, but just slight modifications. That's how they do, that's how they make products in other worlds, or in other countries, I'm sorry. They make products, and it looks like the, the American thing, but there's no quality there. It was made, you know, with the least, the cheapest parts available, and you have it for a week, and then it breaks. It's a counterfeit. But notice, now we get into verse 9. It says, Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Let's stop right there because if we go back to verse 9 here, it says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. We've identified who the woman is, this false religious system. We believe it's Rome. And also notice that, it, that the seven heads are seven mountains that, on which she sits. And what is Rome known as? It's known as the city on seven hills or seven mountains. That's a very well-known thing going all the way back into antiquity. Now, there are some who disagree on this, and that's okay. We're going to get to the seven heads, because notice in verse 10, the seven heads are also seven kings. This certain phrase actually has two meanings, it seems. Some believe it's just one, but I believe it could be two, because I believe in my heart that Rome is is the center of this, uh, or, or the, 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 the nucleus of this false religious system. But notice it says, there are also seven kings, and five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And this can be somewhat of a, uh, a tricky thing for us, because it sounds very cryptic, but I want you to understand that the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, is it the apocalypsis, is it the unveiling, or is it the uh, covering up? Is it trying to cover up something or is it trying to unveil something? The very name of the term, revelation, means the unveiling, taking off the wraps, right? And so we believe that these seven heads uh, are seven, it could mean seven mountains. We know that um, in the Bible, oftentimes a, a mountain refers to a, a, uh, a kingdom and a king specifically, but, but a kingdom. And we, cannot, we can see that in Isaiah chapter 2. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's shall, uh, the Lord's house shall also be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. That's Christ's kingdom on the mountains. His kingdom on the mountains. And it also speaks in Daniel chapter 2, uh, verses 34 and 35. Daniel says, you watched while a stone was cut and he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. 
He says, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And notice, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. What is this great mountain that's going to crush all the kingdoms of the earth? Let me give you a hint. It starts in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus coming back to the earth. He is going, his kingdom is going to come and it's going to destroy all the earthly kingdoms, going to crush them into powder. And what does he go on in, in, in the same chapter? Daniel goes a little further in verse 44 of chapter 2. He says, And in the days of those kings, the God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these nations, and it shall stand forever, inasmuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will come to pass after after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So Daniel's saying that that mountain is God's kingdom. So you understand that seven mountains, biblically, there's other examples, but we won't go there. They also refer to kingdoms. Kingdoms. Does that make sense? It speaks of kingdoms. And no doubt it could also mean that this place where this harlot sits, her foundation, her center, if you will, is a city with seven hills on it. Rome is the only one that's really known as that. The city on seven hills There's ancient Roman coins showing Titus Vespasian sitting on the seven hills of Rome when he conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's Roman poets speaking of it as the lofty city on seven peaks which rules the world. And it's interesting that even the Roman Catholic Church in the confraternity edition of the New Testament, they actually claim that Rome is Babylon. In their own words, they actually claim that themselves. And it's really no surprise because the, the, there's so much of the uh, Babylonianism uh, embedded, if you will, in that religion. I've been to Rome. I, I was in Rome in 1990. I was in the, I, I, I visited the, the, the Vatican. I went in and I looked all around. I went into the Sistine Chapel and all the galleries and I seen all the gold gilded ceilings and all the statues, the incense, the darkness, the, the stained glass windows. Everything was just so kind of like mysterious. Like you, like it's almost like you can't handle this. What a mystery this is. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm telling you what I believe is the truth, but does that mean that I hate Catholics? No, absolutely not. There's some Catholics that I know who are born again and they love Jesus and they're on fire for the Lord. And I love that. I don't know why they're still staying there. Hopefully they're uh, proselytizing the others uh, that they go, the, the church they go to. But some people do really know Jesus and others do not. And those people the Lord loves, does he not? He loves them, and we ought to love them. There's no enemies. There's one enemy, and that's, that's Satan himself. But everybody else is someone we want to reach, we want to love, right? But the system is what I'm talking about. The system is apostate. The system has its roots in idolatry. Okay, it's a proven fact. You can argue with me if you want, but I won't listen. <laughs> or I'll listen, but I'll just nod and think what I believe. 
okay? And I think if you look into it too, you'll find that to be true, okay? So not trying to be a, um, um, a pig. I'm not trying to be a pig here. Just being honest with you. And we looked at that, the, the seven hills. We know that these are, the, these are the seven hills, the names of them. And we looked at this map of, of the seven hills uh, on, in Rome. And Rome has been and will more likely, again, be the center of this church, of this harlot church, and others will gather around it. Even uh, Layman Strauss, um, speaking of uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third. Uh, who reigned from 1958 to 1963, he said, Since the late Pope John ascended the papal throne, there has been a growing movement toward the merging of all religions into a world church. Can you believe that? He also had a desire uh, for a one-world government and a one-world church. He called two councils for the express purpose of setting the wheels in motion toward the forming of the ecumenical church. These are things that are very well documented in history. And the Vatican and the Roman Catholic Church have consistently over the years, they've caved in on, on issues that are not biblical. They, they, they've accepted them when they, are not, when they don't have any foundation in the Bible. And we looked at, remember last week, we talked about the, the adoration of Mary, how they see her as co-redeemer with Jesus, co-redemptrix, the mediatrix, uh, along with Christ. In other words, they are both equal standing. In fact, because when you pray to Jesus, he doesn't always hear, you can go through the, the Blessed Mother. Does that sound like Jesus to you? I don't think it is. In fact, i got to share something with you. I, I, this last week I was uh, reading, and I came across this article, and it was, it was December 7th. And this article basically is a, um, it was on LifeSite News, and there's a gentleman by the name, his, he was an archbishop, Carlo Maria Vigiano. And in this article, and I don't want to get into his, his gripe with another uh, pastor or another um, priest or whatever in the Catholic Church, but I want to read to you uh, some passages and it'll just floor you, I think, because it's, it's, it's very, um, it makes sense with everything that's going on in our world right now and um, what this passage is speaking about. But let me read to you. It says, over the course of history, this Archbishop, uh, Carlo Maria Vigiano, he said, over the course of history, Our Lady, speaking of Mary, has inter- intervened as a loving mother to warn us of the punishments that weigh upon the world because of its sins. In order to invite mankind to conversion and penance and to fill her children with innumerable graces, wherever the word of God seems to be forgotten, there the voice of the Mary most holy is heard. Now to announce a particular devotion, now to ask for sacrifices and prayers to escape pestilence and scourges. And he lists some cities and he says, and in a thousand other places, the mediatrix of all graces has admonished us, recalling humanity, misled into rebellion against the divine law to true repentance and the recitation of the holy rosary. Although the various times and circumstances of her apparitions change, changes, she who deems to show her herself to us poor mortals is always the same, ever merciful, and ever our advocate. Are you serious? But yet, the Bible tells me, in 1 John, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Mary, the mediatrix. Is that what it says? 
No, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who paid the price, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What does it say also in John? He said, or in Timothy, I'm sorry. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. I just said that who gave himself a ransom to be testified in due time. And then it goes on in the article, and let me just read a couple of snippets. In obedient, and these are just phrases within the, 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 the article, and I've got the article, I can share it with you, I can text you the link, whatever you want, you can want to read it yourself. But it says, In obedience to the universal lordship of Christ, the King, we also accept venerating Mary most holy as our Queen. Doesn't the Bible talk about the Queen of the, of the universe? that Judah got in trouble and so did Israel, the queen, the, queen of, the queen of the universe or the queen of the heavens. This is where it all came from. Where did that come from? Well, guess what? It, came, it went all the way back to Babylon, and they still are holding to it. He goes on and he says, every, listen, this is, this is a killer. Every desire of the mother of God is an order for us. It does not even need to be thought of as a command because our response and our desire is and must be to please her and give her proof of our fidelity. He goes on, this is the last sentence. It is better to die amidst the most atrocious torments than to offend the most blessed virgin and her divine son. But I don't really believe that they worship Mary at all, do you? I don't believe that they venerate her above Christ. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, right? Of course they do. It's an unfortunate thing. They need to repent because it's sin. Mary loved her son. She knew her son was the only way to salvation. The last words in the Bible recorded for us in John chapter 2 is what? Whatever he says, do it. That's the last words in the Bible. Mary, unfortunately, is in heaven shaking her head going, why are they doing this? It's not my fault, Lord. And he goes, oh, I know. I know where it came from. And I'm going to put an end to it. I'm going to destroy it. In fact, I'm going to allow someone else to destroy it. And I'll send that judgment on the great harlot, who will also be Protestantism, New Age movements, Islam probably, and also Roman Catholicism. It's all going to be grouped into one. John Lennon would be so proud if he were alive to visit this church. In another article, and again, and this will be the last one, in Culture Watch News, there's a, the title of the article is, You Won't Believe What Pope Francis Just Did to President Trump and the Americans Are Furious. Let me just read a few things. Throughout history, now why am I bringing this up? Because we are on the verge of something, and some of you may not like this, but I, I'll just ask you to give me the liberty to share what I believe is the truth. I believe we're on the verge of something that's not good. And I believe, and, and, and this, this is why this article is so poignant and so pertinent and so... Um, with, there's a word I want. It's, it's so with the time that we're living in. Well, let me read this to you. It says, and I'm just going to read it, uh, portions of it. Throughout history, the Vatican has tried to stay out of American politics. And it says, the election of 2020 being so divisive, many hope that Pope Francis, and he's the current sitting pope, as you know, would not get involved this time around. This is especially true since we still don't know who will be the president for the next four years. But that didn't stop Pope Francis from sticking his nose right in the middle of our current election crisis. 
According to Biden's transition team, the Pope called Joe Biden and extended blessings and congratulations and noted his appreciation. But that's not all. Biden also thanked Pope Francis for his leadership in promoting peace, reconciliation, and the common bonds of humanity around the world. That all sounds nice and good. But then it says it's worth noting that Pope Francis is famous for promoting socialism while in the Vatican. And even though the Pope decided to acknowledge a Biden's, or Biden's victory, bishops across the United States have refused, praise God, to claim Biden or Trump as victorious yet. And this is, not, this is just a, a slap uh, to the face for President Trump as he is still fighting voter fraud in the courts as we speak. But that didn't stop Pope Francis from jumping the gun to congratulate Joe Biden, who would be the second Catholic to ever hold the office of the presidency. And if Joe Biden does win this election, then it is safe to say that he and Pope Francis will be pushing some radical leftist policies together. I quote, very interesting. That's where we're headed, unless the Lord intervenes. And I hope he does. Verse 10 in our text. There are also seven kings. We've looked at this. Uh, and notice, five have fallen. And so we're going to look at these seven kings. These seven, uh, they're not only just kings, but they're also um, uh, they're, they're, um, they're kingdoms. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The best way to understand these seven, king, uh, seven kings primarily is, is representing seven successive Gentile world powers or kingdoms that have been on the earth. Some have tried to associate these seven kings with seven Roman emperors, but it's really forced if you, if you believe in that. I, I've looked at the list and where do you start and when do you stop? And there's a lot of, it has to really be forced to make that happen. This is less forced because really, even though there's eight world empires here, the eighth one is really just a, uh, a second iteration or the second half. Remember how I said the Roman Empire was like uh, Roman Empire stage one and Roman Empire stage two? Well, actually, Roman Empire stage one has already occurred. That's in, in numeral six, where it's the historical Roman Empire. The Roman Empire that was concurrent when John was alive on the Isle of Patmos writing this book. And so... These seven uh, kingdoms, and, and really the, the, there's actually an eight, but it's really a, 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 an expanded version of, of seven, really. The first one was Egypt. The second one was Assyria. Babylon, or Neo-Babylon, that's where Nebuchadnezzar uh, reigned. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Greece Empire under Alexander the Great. And the historic Roman Empire, which we know was what uh, reigned and was uh, in power when Jesus was alive and also when John was on the Isle of Patmos. And then we're going to see also that we know that there's going to be a revived Roman Empire, the second half, if you will, of the Roman Empire. And then ultimately, when it talks about this, uh, notice in, in verse 11, it says, The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. And this eighth kingdom is gonna, really going to come out of this revived Roman Empire. And it's a little interesting, and we'll, let's just take a look at it really quick, because when John is writing this, notice it says five have fallen. And certainly, think about where he was. He was on the Isle of Patmos, and the five kingdoms 
were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. They had already fallen. He was literally in the middle of when the Roman Empire was in. So five have fallen. One is, that one is, is the one that he is currently sitting in at the time when he was on the Isle of Patmos writing this book. So one is, and then notice the Lord tells them, and the other has yet to come. This is the one that we call the revived Roman Empire, which is really number seven, the revived Roman Empire. And this is going to initially consist of the Antichrist and ten nations. We're going to call them ten horns. These are going to be probably members of the... um, the European economic community, it's going to have something to do with that, the revived Roman Empire. These are going to be ten kings that are going to be reigning somewhere around the middle of the tribulation period, right before the Antichrist sets an image of himself in the temple. But prior to that, he's got these men with him. They are actually going to destroy the woman because, remember, the woman rides the beast. The woman, this false religious system, is using is really somewhat controlling the beast. But we're going to see later on in this chapter that there comes a point where the beast saying, you know what, I'm kicking you off my back. I no longer need you. And that's what we're reading about right now in chapter 17 is the destruction of that ecclesiastical false religious system. We're going to see it as we get to the latter part of this chapter. These ten kings are going to destroy this system. They're going to destroy the, I don't know exactly how that's going to happen, but they're going to nullify it, make it null and void. And he has to do that because he's going to set himself, an image of himself up into a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Remember, that's when, that, that's when things get really ugly. That's the midpoint of the tribulation, and then all hell breaks loose after that as the bull wrath judgments come in quick succession like a woman in labor pains. So John says five have fallen, all all of them up to Greece have fallen, and then one is. John is speaking of the one that he is currently um, living in when he wrote this. The other is yet to come, and that's speaking of this revived Roman Empire. And when he comes, he must come a short time. Remember, the beast and the, the system that he governs over are really one. And notice, the beast that was and is not, meaning he did die, he did have an assassination attempt, he came back to life, incarnate was Satan, now it says he himself is also the eighth. And notice that he's of the seven. He's of the seven. That's why I put eight here. It's really seven, but eight is really the final final destination of this revived Roman Empire. But it really is the revived Roman Empire, and that includes the Antichrist and these ten world leaders in the first half of the Great Tribulation, right toward the middle, right 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 toward the middle is when this church is going to be destroyed. This apostate church. But then... Those ten kings or those ten rulers are going to give their power to him. And then he is going to be the eighth kingdom. And that's what it says right here, doesn't it? The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, but he's also of the seven. Does that make sense? He was of the seven. He was of the seven. He's number seven, the revived Roman Empire. He's of the seven, but he's also going to be finally enthroned himself. All power given to him. He's not sharing that power with anybody else. Not with the ten other leaders of, of, of the Roman Empire or the revived Roman Empire. He is going to set as king on the throne. That's what the devil has always wanted. It's what he told Jesus. If you just fall down and worship me, I'll give you all this stuff. You can bypass the cross. You can have the whole world. Just bow down to me once. Let's get it on video because I'm going to loop it on YouTube. That's what the devil was thinking. And of course, YouTube would let him. Because it's fake news. I'm not bitter. 
Oh, help. So these are successive kingdoms. Does that make sense to you all? Successive kingdoms. There are a couple other, uh, there's really only three views to look at this. One is a symbolic view. One is to look at them as a list of popes or Roman emperors. But the, the one that makes sense, and many agree that this historical successive kingdom view is probably the best way to interpret this. And, you know, again, it could be a conjecture, but it fits very well, and it matches up with the scripture with what we know to be true. Now, it's interesting um, that notice in verse 11, it says, The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven. And notice at the end, and is going to perdition. He is going to perdition. His final resting place is going to be in Gehenna or the lake of fire. What does it tell us in Revelation 19 verse 20? Right when Jesus comes back, he's going to dissolve those armies of the Antichrist who are coming against Jerusalem there in the valley of Armageddon all the way up. That 200 mile stretch is going to be filled and lined with dead bodies of men on horses. And yes, horses. (laughs) And they're going to be invading that area. And notice what it says. That then the beast was captured, this Antichrist, And with him, the false prophet, who we read about in the other half of uh, Revelation 13, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Notice, these two were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. They were cast alive into the lake of fire, and they are going to live forever in torment. He is going to perdition. Isn't that what it just says in Revelation? He is also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The finality of that is wonderful because God is all-powerful. You cannot mess with God. You cannot push him off of his mountain. I'd like to see you try it. My dad is bigger than your dad. I love that when you're a kid. Oh, yeah, well, my old man will beat your old man up. You know, and you get in a fight with a neighborhood kid. Well, my old man, oh, no, man, my old man will take your father out. You know, he'll stand on the mountain, he'll, you know, and all this bravado. But this I know for sure. God wins. And guess what? Because God wins, we win. Because we are in the beloved. Aren't you glad that you're on the winning side? No matter what. And I'm not, I'm not ashamed or have a problem with that. I'll boast about that all day long because is it because of anything that I did? No. And that's why I can boast. If I boast of my own goodness, my own righteousness, I'm in, a, I got, I'm in a serious trouble. I'm in serious trouble. But when I boast about him, oh, it's wonderful to boast about God. And boy, the devil hates it when you boast about God. And so be it. Amen? Amen. So, Notice in verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they resist, or they receive authority, excuse me, for one hour. This could literally be one hour, but more than likely one hour, most of the time in the Bible, speaks of a period of time. Remember, Jesus said, my hour had not yet come. But finally, it says in the upper room, remember, his hour had come. And how long did that hour last? Several hours. Because it would be several hours before he'd be taken to the cross. But that whole span of time, probably 10, 15 hours, something like that, whatever that, a number of hours, that was his hour. That was his time. Up until that point, he said, my time has not yet come. But it says there in what John chapter 13, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. And I believe that this is a period of time, a very short period of time. It could be three and a half years 
when the Antichrist makes that peace treaty with Israel, he's going to these ten these ten kings from the revived Roman Empire are all going to be in cahoots with him. And there's more to that, by the way. But these ten horns are ten kings at the time, and they receive power for an hour, and they yield ultimately that power to the Antichrist. These ten kings are not to be confused, again, with the seven heads or the seven world empires that we just looked at. Two different things. In Daniel chapter 7, let me read to you something, just the first six verses, first eight verses, because this goes along with these, these ten horns. And this is important because Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's interpreting for the king Nebuchadnezzar these visions of world kingdoms that are coming. And God gives to Daniel that information. And in Daniel chapter 7, this corroborates what we're reading here about the seven heads and the ten horns. Notice, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while he was on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream. Telling the main facts, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, which is the Mediterranean, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, these world empires. And the first one was like a lion, and we know that that, and it had eagle's wings. That's speaking of Babylon. I watched till its wings were plucked up, and it was lifted from the earth and made to stand on its two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, who we know as the, the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth, speaking probably of the nations like Egypt and Assyria, and I think another one that they had uh, conquered. Um, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, who we know is the kingdom of Greece, under Alexander the Great, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Four wings were the four generals after um, uh, Alexander died. His four generals divided up the kingdom, and it became a lesser kingdom than what it was. But the beast also had four heads. Oh, I'm sorry, in verse 6. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, and had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. But notice in verse 7, it says this, And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. Rome is often called the, the, the iron furnace, or you know the, the iron... Um, prison or whatever you want to call it. It's often called that. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts which were before it. And notice it had ten horns. Ten horns. And as I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so we believe based on this, uh, because he doesn't give us the other, you know, he, he says Rome here, that the fourth beast is Rome, right? We know that that was uh, the Rome that John was uh, alive during. But we also know that the second part of that is the revived Roman Empire yet coming. And we also know that there's going to be ten horns or ten kings that are going to rise up with this Antichrist. And it gives us a little information here about what we believe is going to be happening with those ten kings who are going to take up their power with the, with the Antichrist for a season. Notice that there were, I was considering the ten horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. Think of ten horns, one coming up plucking out three by its roots, and in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and speaking pompous words. Of course, this is speaking of the Antichrist. 
was going to, there's probably going to be some scuttle, probably, within those ten kings. But he's going to remove those three kings. And ultimately, at the end of the day, those kings are going to give all their authority to him. And he's going to rule in that eighth kingdom, which is really just the revived Roman Empire. But now he alone, he alone is sitting on the throne. Does that make sense? You can also look in Daniel chapter 2. We don't have really time to go there. But in Daniel chapter 2, it it speaks of uh, these same things. The the ten toes of that vision of that statue that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of. Those ten toes in that vision speak of these ten same horns. These ten kings that are going to take their authority with the Antichrist in the last days before he sets himself up in the temple in Jerusalem. So let's go on to verse 13. We're getting close to the end here. Notice, these are of one mind, these ten kings, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, to the Antichrist, to this man of perdition. And these will make war with the Lamb. And you'll see that when we get to Revelation 19, the latter part of chapter 19, Jesus, when he returns in his glory and we are coming behind him, it says that he is going to consume them with the sword of his mouth. He could literally open his mouth and say a word, and believe me, they are all going to be destroyed. We won't even need to get blood on our, our fine linens, you know, uh, things that we're wearing. He's going to do it, but we're going to show up and probably try to take credit for it. <laughs> But he's coming back. Now that doesn't bless God. Do you think he he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked? Does he? But as much as God's love is, so great is his wrath also. That's the other side of the coin of great love is great wrath. Because great love has to judge. We don't like that part of it. I know my mother loved me because when I did bad things, she got the belt out after me. And I learned obedience through suffering. <laughs> Isn't that what it says about Jesus too? That through, through suffering, he learned obedience. That's what it says. So is it a good thing to, um, to discipline your children? Oh, not now, no. You can't, even, you can't even spank your child without somebody calling child protective services against you. And then the child gets wind of this and like, hey, I like this. What's that 800 number? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm off on a tangent. I know that. But um, our society is nuts. I was disciplined as a child, and I was the better for it. I'm the better for it today because my mother did do that. Beware of anything that says, oh, you shouldn't do any of that stuff. Now, there's a difference between abuse and regular punishment. You understand what I'm saying? There's a difference. And that's not what I'm talking about. But you should be able to do that. It's our mandate as a, as a parent to discipline our kids, and sometimes with the belt. It's not going to fly in today's society. But let me suggest to you, today's society is broken. Today's society is insanity. Today's society doesn't know anything. They claim to have all the knowledge. They know nothing. I'll believe the word of God. Thank you very much. Amen? But notice, these... These ten, with the Antichrist, they're going to make war with the Lamb. They're going to see him coming. and Think of the insanity of this. You see Jesus coming in the clouds. He comes to the earth, and you still want to go fight him. Do you really think you have a chance? That's the insanity of sin and rebellion. You think you got a chance. 
And maybe the Antichrist has got you so deceived in thinking you have a chance. There's no chance. It's a fool's errand. A fool's errand. Notice, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Don't you love that? I love what it says in Revelation 19. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Hallelujah. <laughs> and then armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Folks, that's you and me. That's you and I coming back with Jesus. I hope my horse name is Trigger. And I want to have those, those little holsters. Even though I won't need them, I just think it would look cool. You've heard me ramble on about this before, but I'm going to do it again. So you know, I want my rifles to be on each side, and you can pull them out. And just With one hand, you can pull them out, and, you know, like the guy they do in the Westerns. And then you have your six shooters on each side, too, you know, just for fun. You know, let the, the Lord will do all the work. We'll just be the smoke and mirrors. No, but... We're going to follow him on white horses, and now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, and here it is, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> yeah, amen. King of kings, isn't that what it says here in, in, in verse 14? And the Lamb will overcome them. He is the Lord of lords, uppercase L, Lord of lowercase L. He is the king, uppercase key, uppercase key, K, of lowercase kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. Oh, I love that. I can't wait for that day. Not because people are going to die. I don't look forward to that. I'm looking for the summation do you feel like your life is sometimes, it's like, it's like, especially this election is a good example. I just feel like if you're a musician, you understand what I'm saying. It's like you're, you're on this chord that needs to be resolved. The chord is very, there's a lot of uh, leading tones and there's a lot of, you know, uh, and you're just like, you hear the chord and you're like, okay, resolve it, please. Resolve that chord. It's like when somebody ends on a five chord, you know, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I mean. And then it just hangs out there and you're like, okay, end. And it never does. We're going to hear the final chord there, and it's going to resolve. And we're all going to take a deep breath. What does it say in Jude chapter 1, verse 14? It says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Enoch, the seventh before Adam, before the flood, prophesied of Jesus coming to the earth with ten thousands of his saints, prophesying before the flood of the very end. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God amazing? Isn't Jesus amazing? He tells you the end from the beginning. Is he not the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending? He's the A to the Z. He's everything in between. He's got it covered. He's got everything covered right now. Saying, are you losing sleep over it? I know I have. What's going on right now has struck me right to the core, but I know that God is in control. I just, I'm looking forward to the resolution. I want the resolution. This nation has suffered with this stupid pandemic. 99 point something, you know, survival rate, and yet we shut down everything? Are you crazy? What's the matter with these people? 
We should take care of the elderly, yes, but the rest of us are going to be just fine, thank you. I know people in this fellowship who've had COVID and they're just fine. I've known people who had COVID and didn't even know they had COVID. I think I had COVID and I don't have it anymore. But yet, I mean, granted, let's do the nice thing, the mask, the, you know, but don't keep it, don't let it keep you from coming to church. We space out, we fumigate, we do all that stuff. You've heard me ramble about that, but, you know, I'm just, the resolution is coming. The resolution is coming. And how I long for that. Notice, it says at the end of verse 14 there that those who are with him are called, notice, they're chosen, and they're faithful. What, is, what does it tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9? What does Peter tell the church? He says, but you are a chosen generation. I think that sounds like us. Sound like us? Who come back with them? We're chosen. We have been chosen. We've been picked. Aren't you glad you've been picked? Oh, pick me, pick me. Remember Arnold Horshack and uh, Welcome Back, Carter? Oh, 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 Mr. Carter, Mr. Carter. Remember that? Pick me, pick me. Now it's coming, right? Now, What is he talking? Okay, now you got it. He picked you. And you know what? He would pick you again. Knowing all that he knows about you, he would say, I want you, and I want you, and I want you. And you know what? He wants to do that with every single human being, but he won't violate that human being's right to say no. It's insanity to me how somebody could go through all this and see him coming and say, I don't think so. Would to God that the world would abandon all and get on their faces in the United States, why don't we do that? Right now in this darkest part of our, one of the darkest moments of our history is happening right now. Are you praying? In anticipation of the things that are starting to roll out that we're reading about. We're coming to the end of these things. We're, we're, we're seeing these things in, in advance. And can you see the things start to happen? Yeah. Oh, it's happening. It's just a question of When? Now, I'm all for the Lord coming and everything like that, but I'm also thinking about my kids, and I'm thinking about, you know, some of you are thinking about your grandkids. Does that mean we just lay down and die? Does that mean we just roll over and quit? God's will will be done, but that doesn't mean that his people should lay down and just quit and say, well, it's, it's going to happen anyway. I might as well just roll over. No, you better fight. You better get on your knees, and you better pray. If we're not praying, we're in sin right now. Please pray, and come out Tuesday night and pray with us. We need to be praying. This is critical. I'm not even so much concerned about the election itself, although I am. You know what concerns me more? And forgive me for my rant, but i got to get this off my chest. And I think you would agree with me, hopefully. This is more than just an election. After all that's happened, are we going to let our Constitution just be crumpled up and thrown in a corner? That's exactly what the powers that be want it to be. In order to get on with this program that we read about, that has to happen. So should we just go, well, it's written in the Bible, so therefore I just cave into it? No. We are to fight for righteousness. Now, do I mean fight physically and pull out guns? No, I'm not talking about that. But we should fight on our knees. We should fight with our voices. We should stand up and no longer be the silent majority any longer. Stand up, people. We need to stand up. Because we're going to wake up one day, if we don't, and our country is going to be something completely different. So, verse 15. 
Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. We know that that's true. And this is symbolic here. It's obviously not speaking of the harlot sitting on many waters. How can that really be? We know who the harlot is. She sits on multitudes. And what is that false religious system? It has command and control over the multitudes upon the earth. It's happening right now, and it'll be even more pronounced then. And again... This harlot church is worldwide and it'll be in every country, in every language. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate, naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. These are these ten uh, kingdoms that are going to reign with the Antichrist and that revived Roman Empire. They are going to destroy her. Notice verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Notice that the woman is synonymous with the city, just like the beast is to his final world government. And again, I believe this is speaking of the apostate church, and very likely, very possibly, Rome. And maybe Babylon, but I really believe it's going to be Rome. We're going to look at Babylon as a city that really has never been destroyed. We're going to look at that next week because that's the economic and political end, the, 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 the other side of the coin of this thing. We're going to look at that next week. So interesting times. Interesting times we live in. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we certainly live in times that are very interesting. Father, we live in times that your word has spoken to us for hundreds of years, even a few thousand years. And Lord, you've spoken of the time that we are coming into right now. Father, I pray that, Lord, in spite of those things, and who knows how long it'll be before those things really kick in. We know they're in preparation right now, and they're very close to being, to come into fruition. But Lord, help us to always, Lord, you, you would have us to, to always promote righteousness, to promote the truth over lies, the truth over deception. You would always have us to do that, regardless. But we also recognize, Lord, that this is so much bigger than any of us. And so, Lord, we trust in you We don't trust in necessarily any government. We trust in you alone. And so, Father, would you bring this to fruition, however you see fit, Lord, and help us just to understand that these are the things that are happening. And, Lord, we just pray for mercy on this country that you have established so long ago. Lord, would you have mercy on us again, and would you pour out your spirit upon the church, upon all of us, Lord, Help us to be people of prayer. Help us to be examining our own lives. Help us to be reaching out to those around us who need to know the truth. Help us to love the lost. Help us to seek that which is lost. 
And Lord, fill us with your spirit. And thank you so much, Lord, for your love for us. You've been so good. You've been so gracious. You've been so compassionate, Lord. We exalt your name. You are the great King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no one like you. There neither could ever be anyone like you. You alone, Lord, are God, omnipotent. You alone are omniscient. You are omnipresent. You are the only one who is all three of those things and so much more in all perfection, in love and compassion and grace and mercy. Lord, you are it all. And so we give you thanks this morning and we exalt your holy, precious name. And it's in your Jesus name, your precious name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. 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 Such a privilege to share with you this morning. Thank you for your time. God bless.